0: This episode is sponsored by Byheart. Byheart is an infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Their mission is simple, make the best formula in the world. Using the latest in breast milk science, Byheart created a clinically proven, easy to digest infant formula that's made with organic grass-fed whole milk, certified clean ingredients, and features a patented protein blend that gets closest to breast milk. Their blend includes the most abundant protein found in breast milk, alpha-lac, as well as lactoferrin, the number one protein found in colostrum. In addition to its patented protein blend, their formula includes prebiotics and an 80-20 weight to casein ratio like in early breast milk, which is tailor-made for a newborn's digestive system and makes it an easy to digest formula. Curious about BiHeart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheartcom forward slash podcast with code Dr. Nicole for a limited time. Additional terms and conditions apply. Back in the day when my girls were born, it was not easy to share photos and videos with loved ones, but you have a fantastic option available, the Family Album app. The family album app was created in 2015 and has operated in the long term to give parents a secure and easy way to share photos and videos with loved ones it's a totally secure personal haven for your family's memories i love that there's no third-party ads no unwanted eyes now let me share some of the great features that make the family album app a go-to app First off, the app automatically sorts photos and videos by month, allowing you to swipe back in time and see how your child has grown. No more scrolling through endless feeds or searching through folders. Another cool feature about the Family Album app is you can order eight free photo prints every month to be delivered to your home. It's really nice to have some tangible pictures to hold on to or share Head over to the App Store today, search Family Album, it's all one word, download the app, and start creating a legacy of love one photo at a time. I am so excited to have back to the podcast, Dr. Rebecca Decker from Evidence-Based Birth, and we are talking all about labor positions. (laughs) Quick note, this podcast is for educational purposes only, and is not a substitute for medical advice. Check out the full disclaimer at drnicolerankins.com forward slash disclaimer. Now let's get to it. Hello there. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Whether you are a new listener or a returning listener, I'm so glad that you're spending some of your time with me today. In today's episode of the podcast, we have back to the podcast, Dr. Rebecca Decker. She is a nurse with her PhD, and she is the founder and CEO of Evidence-Based Birth, as well as the author of a great book called Babies Are Not Pizzas, They're Born, Not Delivered. I've actually read the book and it's really good. And if you wanna hear her first appearance on the podcast, she was back on the podcast all the way back to episode 18. So you can grab it at my website, NicoleRankins.com forward slash episode 18. And we chat about how she started evidence-based birth and the journey to get there. And a little bit about evidence-based birth, the mission of the team at evidence-based birth is to work towards a world in which all families have access to safe, respectful, evidence-based and empowering care during pregnancy, birth and postpartum. They do this by boldly making the research evidence on childbirth freely and publicly accessible. Dr. Decker is also the host of the Evidence Based Birth podcast with more than 4.5 million downloads. I know a lot of you all who listen to this podcast also listen to her podcast. And in this episode today, we are talking about birth positions. So we are going to go through what are the various birth positions, really defining what they are. And you're going to learn about the research surrounding birth positions, including what position people choose most often if they have the choice, why most people in the US end up giving birth on their backs. We'll chat about some of the dangers or harms of the typical birth position, which is the lithotomy position or stirrups. We'll talk about the evidence on birth positions for those giving birth with an epidural as well as without an epidural. And then she shares some advice on what she would tell people who plan to give birth in the hospital about trying to navigate the reality that most doctors and nurses want People to give birth on their backs. That's just the reality of our US healthcare system and she provides some advice for that. Great episode, I know you are going to enjoy it and learn a lot. Now, something else that you can do in order to really help prepare you and learn about birth positions and how to advocate for yourself within the hospital is childbirth education. That is why I strongly encourage everyone to do some form of childbirth education I, of course, have an option, the birth preparation course. That's my online childbirth education class that will get you calm, confident, and empowered to have a beautiful birth with a focus especially on hospital birth and helping you navigate the hospital birth system. But really, it's so important that you do any some sort of childbirth education, okay? I don't want to say any childbirth education because not all of them are created equal, but do some high-quality childbirth education. Evidence-based birth has childbirth education options as well. It's just really something that is so, so important. I don't want you to skip it. So if you want to check out the birth preparation course, then do check that out. DrnicoleRankins.com forward slash enroll. I would love to serve you and help you there. Okay, let's get into the conversation with Dr. Rebecca Decker from Evidence-Based Birth. <music> Thank you so much Rebecca for agreeing to come back on the podcast. I can't believe it's been a long time since you were here
1: on the podcast, but I'm really excited to have you back. I am so excited to be back as well. I know your podcast has grown a lot in the last few years as has ours at EDB, so it's fun to be able to collaborate again.
0: Yeah, I think lots of people, if they listen to my podcast, they listen to your podcast, so (laughs) they seem to work well for folks together. So why don't you start off a bit by telling us a bit about yourself and your work and your family, if you'd like.
1: Sure. So my name's Rebecca, and I got into the birth field after my second baby was born. So when my first was born, I was I was a nurse getting my PhD in nursing, and I gave birth at an academic medical center. And at the time, I just really wanted to be a good patient. I wanted the nurses especially to like me. I had a great relationship with my OB, and she was going to be the one who was present at my birth. So I felt really fortunate with that. But the how my stay itself in the hospital was managed was just really surprising to me. Mm. The way I was told I was not allowed out of bed, I was kept on the monitors the whole time, not allowed to eat or drink or even have ice chips at the time. And because I had a long labor, the nurses, nobody ever suggested I reposition. So I laid on my back in bed for the whole 24 hours, including Mm. while I was pushing my baby out. And I pushed for three hours and ended up needing both the OB to use their hand to manually turn my baby's head as well as a vacuum for several reasons. One, I was exhausted. Two, my baby was in a less than ideal position, probably because I'd been laying on my back mm-hmm. the whole time. And third, the epidural had numbed me so much that for the first couple hours that I was pushing, I wasn't really doing anything.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: then that exhausted me. And then sure. the third hour. So she was born with the help of a vacuum and then immediately taken away for observation. And I didn't get her back for another three hours, even mm. though her APGARs were normal. And that really bothered me. That was the part that bothered me the most. Like all the restrictions, you know, the e- not eating was really frustrating, but I could put up with that. It was right. having my baby taken away that for me was, you know, the hardest part and the part that made me... A year later, like a lot of people do, I think around the one year anniversary of giving birth, you start to think about your baby's birthday. Mm -hmm. You start to have some flashbacks and you just start musing on it. And so I started questioning everything that happened. To be honest, I didn't really question anything until that happened. So I made a list of everything that happened to me and I started looking up the research evidence and I was surprised to find that even though I was giving birth in like what was supposed to be a cutting edge academic medical center, Mm -hmm. a lot of the things that the nurses told me I must do, or I was not allowed to do, um, were not healthy for me or my baby. And obviously taking your baby away, there's no evidence to support that. Mm -hmm. It can interfere with breastfeeding and bonding and, with laying on my back the whole time. And that's, I know what we're going to talk about today. Right. There wasn't even the slightest suggestion that I turned to my side. And because Mm. I had an epidural, I was just completely motionless from the waist down. I couldn't do anything without help. And they had, they dosed it too, too high, I guess, Mm -hmm. because I know with a low dose epidural, that's not necessarily a problem. Sure. So I started looking up the research and then I decided to have a completely different experience the next time around. So my first baby only weighed six pounds, eight ounces. And as you can see, it took me three full hours to push her out. My second baby I had with the help of a midwife and I pushed him out in 10 or 15 minutes and Mm -hmm. he weighed nine pounds, two ounces. Mm. So you can see how like I did everything differently. The second time around. And it made a huge difference in particular, like how my baby was positioned, what positions I used to help my baby get in a better position. And a lot of what I used was the upright birthing positions, which we're going to share about today. And after that, I went on to start publishing this research on my blog, Evidence-Based Birth. And Mm -hmm. kind of the rest is is history Yeah, because people really wanted that information.
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And of course, we'll link Evidence-Based Birth in the show notes and everything. But you all, Rebecca takes it. She and her team take a very deep dive into evidence and present a balanced, it's not Mm-hmm. they present what's there. So it's not biased. It's very, very unbiased information. Something that I have gone to many times. So I, I certainly appreciate your work. So let's start with defining what are the various birth positions in general?
1: Okay. So there's a couple different ways that researchers can Classify positions. Mm-hmm. Whether or not you are upright or not is one way you can classify. So, upright would include standing or squatting. You might be supported by a partner or a prop. Kneeling upright or on your hands and knees is considered an upright position, as is using a birth seat or a birthing mm-hmm. stool. Dancing is an upright <laughs> position that you can labor in as well. And then lying down positions medically are typically called recumbent or semi recumbent. Mm-hmm. And those include lying on your back, which the medical t- medical term for that is supine. Mm-hmm. If you're lying on your back and the head of your bed is elevated, then this might be called semi sitting or semi recumbent. And that's what I picture the position I was in for my whole labor where the head of the bed was raised, but I was lying there. Sure. And then the lithotomy position is also a lying down position. That's when you're lying on your back with your hips and knees flexed, your thighs apart, and your legs are either supported in stirrups or by people holding your legs in the air. And with that, your head of the bed can also be raised. And then another thing that's interesting is the side lying position mm-hmm. is technically a lying down position as well, but that is considered to be a more beneficial lying down position. And so, th- Another way you could categorize positions is whether or not you have the weight on your tailbone. Mm. So this, the body weight lying on the sacrum, that's the, the large kind of plate at the bottom of your spine towards your pelvis. And then you have the tailbone, which makes up the bottom tip of that. So Some positions like kneeling, standing, hands and knees, side lying, squatting, and using a birth seat, that sacrum can flex because it's not being like pushed into one position. But if you're lying on your back with or without the head of the bed raised up, or if you're semi sitting in bed or in the lithotomy position, Mm -hmm. typically that sacrum is going to be less flexible. So they've done some like computer simulations and MRI studies, and they have found that when that tailbone is allowed to move freely. It can move nearly 16 degrees, which can make a quite a difference for mm-hmm. the baby's head to be able yeah. to come out. And there's been consistent research that when you take the weight off of the tailbone and allow the pelvis to, to make more room, it makes spontaneous birth without the use of surgery, vacuum, or forceps more likely. So those are kind of like the different categories you can look at.
0: Sure, sure, sure. That's an excellent overview. So (laughs) when we think about people or when we know about people in the U.S., how do most people in the U.S. give birth?
1: Okay, so and it's not just the U.S. This is um, a problem in many countries around the world. That is that it is it's thought that most healthcare workers around the world encourage people to birth in back-lying or semi-sitting positions for Mm -hmm. the convenience for the healthcare worker. And there's been studies on that in the U.S., but also India is another example of a country where um, most people still use lithotomy as the most common position with your feet up in stirrups. So I think in the U.S., it's about 68% are lying on their backs or and another 23% are in a semi-sitting position, so both mm-hmm. of those are considered the recumbent or lying down positions. And when you're looking at hospital births, the last data we have on this, unfortunately is from nine years ago, but only about 3% were using side-lying, 4% were using squatting or sitting, and 1% were using hands or knees. Now, if you contrast that with freestanding birth centers or home births that you talk to a home birth midwife, they'll often tell you, like, it's very rare for them to see anybody spontaneously choose a lying down position when they're Mm -hmm. at home or in a birth center. When someone has freedom of movement, and they feel comfortable in their environment, they almost always will instinctively choose an upright position or a sacrum flexible position. Now, there's some people for whatever reason, they feel more comfortable pushing on their backs. And sometimes that ends up being chosen, but most of the time, it's not
0: right. Right, right. And as you said, this is mostly due to, for convenience of the attendant at birth.
1: And convenience can mean a lot of different things. So it's more convenient to do fetal monitoring with the belts. Mm -hmm. um, If someone is in bed on their back, it's more convenient because that's how most healthcare workers are trained. So Mm -hmm. even when they simulate birth with mannequins, they're doing it with the mannequin, their back and so a lot of healthcare workers feel uncertain or afraid if somebody's on their hands and knees for example because they feel like the birth is happening upside down like they haven't been trained to see a head emerge from that angle and Mm -hmm. so when the head's coming out they're kind of like wait where where's the baby like what's going on so it's it's less fear inducing for the Mm -hmm. healthcare provider and then if you have an epidural It's obviously more convenient for the patient to be on their back because it's harder to move them around, especially if there's a high-dose epidural. And then there's just a lot of importance placed on having the patient in the bed so that you can control or manage the delivery. So all those factors come together to make it seem like a no-brainer in most hospitals. This is the way we do it. This is easier for us. And, And in their mind, because it's how they see birth happen like they feel like they can handle complications better in that way.
0: Sure. Whereas sure. an
1: upright birth, say somebody's standing at the side of the bed and their baby's coming out while mm-hmm. they're standing mm-hmm. on the hospital floor, like that seems really risky or scary mm-hmm. plus inconvenient.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But however, as you said, research research shows that for people, and I guess I don't know if we should um, qualify this, without an epidural or unmedicated birth, most often people will choose an upright position is that fair to say
1: i think so in some countries they might choose lying down or semi-sitting because they know that's what's expected of them Mm. so in some of the guidelines for midwives and providers who are trying to support upright birth they often say sometimes you have to encourage people to do an upright position Simply because that's all they see in the movies and on TV is women giving birth on their back, and they Mm -hmm. just assume that that's how it has to be done. Sure, and there's no other way to do it. Sure. So yeah, I think if you leave, if somebody is trained in that mindset, Mm -hmm. yeah, they might choose that position because they think that's what they're supposed to do.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. As an OBGYN and podcast host, I'm excited to share a resource that empowers mothers and mothers to be in managing their pelvic floor and core health. It's called Informed Pregnancy Plus, and it offers access to essential workshops that can significantly enhance your understanding and care of your body during and after pregnancy. Discover the Core Connection, a foundational five episode series by Natalie Headings, a pre postnatal exercise specialist. This series covers the basics of pelvic floor health, teaches key postural adjustments, and shows you how to activate your core properly. For a more comprehensive experience, check out Mindful Movement. This premium series provides in-depth content, including practical exercises and personalized strategies to strengthen your body. It's like having a pelvic health expert in your home. You can try the full subscription streaming library of Informed Pregnancy Plus absolutely free. Visit informedpregnancy.tv to start an empowered journey toward a healthier motherhood. Take this step for your health. Your body and your baby will thank you. So let's go through the different birth positions. And I actually first want to start with, uh, because you've talked about this on your podcast and in your work about the specific dangers of the position that most often people give birth in or very frequently give birth in the US the dangers of being in lithotomy and stirrups
1: mm-hmm. yeah it's interesting cuz you can you can frame it in two ways you can frame like the benefits of upright positions mm-hmm. or you can talk about like the risks of the non-upright positions mm-hmm. and i i think that the lithotomy is a really interesting position to examine because it's gotten to the point where it's still probably one of the most common birthing positions used around the world, but it's considered to be so dangerous that researchers won't include it in studies anymore. Mm. So in one of the largest reviews ever published on this subject when they're looking at people without epidurals... And they actually exclude any study that used the lithotomy. And they, the, the authors were Zhang et al. They wrote, quote, these horizontal positions can have serious negative effects on maternal health and are not recommended by many international organizations. And then when you go to people with epidurals, there is a lot of recent research on lithotomy, finding that it can be quite harmful. And one of the ways that it's harmful is first of all, it can be more painful.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Second of all, it is considered unethical because it is like a restraint because you can't really get out of that position if people are kind of like holding your legs or your feet are in the stirrups and everybody's surrounding you. Sure. But also the perineal integrity. So the Mm -hmm. perineum is a diamond shaped area of of tissue between your legs. And when you have a lithotomy, you're much, much more likely to have a severe tear or to be cut with an episiotomy, which can be equivalent to having a a severe tear in Mm -hmm. some circumstances. And so if you want to lower your chances of having a severe tear or an episiotomy, the most important thing you can do is to not give birth in the lithotomy position. It's just, it leaves you too exposed to interference. And when... People, when healthcare workers interfere, when there's no medical need to interfere, Mm -hmm. that's when you're having lots of like preventable complications.
0: Sure. Sure. Okay. Mm -hmm. That, that, that makes sense. That definitely Mm -hmm. makes sense. So let's talk about some of the other birth positions and the evidence about those and i think it's helpful to separate out into without an epidural mm-hmm. and with an epidural mm-hmm. because it can be different and that your options for what you can move into are different so let's start with without an epidural what does the research show about benefits and even if there are any potential risk of different birth positions without an epidural
1: okay so the study i referenced earlier where they excluded the lithotomy position that was mm-hmm. done by zhang et al and published in 2020 they have 12 randomized controlled trials with about 4,300 participants, and they separated, separated everyone into those who are randomly assigned to be upright versus those who were assigned to be lying down. Upright included semi-sitting, but they actually didn't have any studies with semi-sitting in it. So okay. basically, we had like walking, standing, leaning, using a birth chair, squatting, and kneeling versus lying down or lying down with the head of the bed raised up. And they found that you're much less likely to have forceps or vacuum used on you if you're Mm -hmm. upright when you're birthing. Your active pushing phase is going to be shorter, especially if you use squatting, that shortens it by more. Mm -hmm. There is a really substantial decrease in the risk of having severe trauma to your perineum, that tissue integrity that we talked about earlier. Yeah. And there's no difference in blood loss between upright versus lying down. And there was a, a higher risk of having what we call a second degree tear if you were squatting or sitting on the birth seat. And they think that's probably because there's a trade-off between like, you, you're you less likely to have an episiotomy, but you might be more likely to have a first or second degree tear, which is considered to be better than having an episiotomy. So it's a little bit of a, a, a good trade-off, they think. Um, in terms of episiotomies, we're not really sure Because every study, the episiotomy rates are so different. Like in some hospitals, episiotomy rates are like 0%. And in Mm -hmm. some hospitals, it's like 100%. So it's really hard to tease that out in a review. But other researchers have also found that um, in individual studies, one of the benefits that people don't think about is that it's significantly less painful to give birth in an upright position, which, of course, if you don't have an epidural... Is important. Sure. Um, there's also at least one study that's found it, you're less likely to have the shoulders get stuck when the mm-hmm. baby comes out. Uh, you're less likely to need an emergency cesarean or to have abnormal fetal heart tones, which makes sense physiologically because if you're lying on your back, you're compressing the aorta, which is the large vessel that brings the oxygenated blood to the fetus so if you're upright you're getting the full blood flow through your body
0: absolutely Mm -hmm. now how when we look at where these studies are done Mm
1: -hmm.
0: how many of them are in the u.s and how do you feel like the studies apply to our population
1: okay yeah so with that one the the zhang study took place in the united kingdom finland brazil china ireland turkey in South Africa. There were not any studies done on this subject in the US. But like I said, the whole concept of birthing positions, Mm -hmm. is a pretty global issue. Like in some areas, you'll find that upright positions are still quite common. But in many countries, because the Western model of care has spread around the world, it's very common for people to lie on their backs. I think the main thing that's hard to generalize is the use of episiotomy. And so that, like I said, that's why they can't really figure out the episiotomy rates because it's so dependent on the provider in the hospital.
0: Yeah. It's interesting to me though. I know some of the studies show like, like you said, really high episiotomy rates. And it seems, I I don't know what the like conflicting in a way that like on the one hand, you know, you're comfortable supporting upright birth, but, uh, but then you have like a you know, 70% episiotomy rate, that just seems to sort of conflict um, with what you would expect.
1: It just shows you that so much of medical practice is cultural and and training. So if you have been, if that was what was modeled to you as a provider, and it's what you've done your whole career, it's really hard to hold back from doing Mm -hmm. something that you were taught was helpful, and you thought you were doing good all that time. It's really hard to all of a sudden be like, oh, wait, hands off i don't i don't use the scissors like i can just see it's a real it's like a paradigm shift and Mm -hmm. you're not going to see that everybody being able to do that and that's why i think upright positions some of the reasons you still see episiotomies is because in some of these studies they will maybe allow you to push in an upright position Mm -hmm. but then they make you get on your back for the delivery sure and so you have to kind of look at each study individually when you're looking at a episiotomy race and be like, all right, did they make them get on their, the lithotomy position for the moment of birth? Right. And very often that's the case. Gotcha. So we don't have a ton of good quality research where people were permitted to follow their urges and push Mm -hmm. in whatever positions they want. And that's another problem with these studies is nobody really wants to just like push in one position, right? Like Mm -hmm. you might be on your back for a little bit, then get up and then move over. Like, especially if you don't have an epidural. So Mm -hmm. it can be hard to like put numbers and statistics on things, but- sure. I don't know if you would agree as a provider, but I think it would be harder to cut someone if they were standing.
0: 1,000%. Yes. Yeah. Okay.
1: Like <laughs> yes. Like you can't, you have to- You have to be able to visualize what you're doing. Yes. You yeah. can't,
0: You. it's 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 absolutely true that if mm-hmm. someone is in an upright position, you just cannot- you can't intervene as much because you mm-hmm. you aren't able to be in a position to do so. So I absolutely agree yeah. that that is the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's yeah, one of the problems sure.
1: though that we face is that I've seen more and more nurses and OBs become more comfortable with the idea of letting someone or letting Yeah, people, yeah, I, yes. Know, mm-hmm. push in in, a, in whatever positions they want, but when it gets close to delivery, then they want the patient in the bed on their back. Mm-hmm. And that erases some, but not all of the benefits, because you still get the benefits of a shorter pushing phase, babies in a better position, right. you have less pain. right? But then by making them get on their back, that introduces the risk of More either more severe perineal tears or an episiotomy, sure, sure. or more pain,
0: right, right, right. I mean, I I do think, or I know that we certainly in the U.S. have come a long way in terms of episiotomy rates, and they're actually pretty pretty low. But it's still very much so provider dependent on what happens. So it's just it's certainly different factors to consider, and the culture. Your your point about cultural practice is really 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 important. That you can be in a place that, oh, we support upright birth, but we're so used to doing episiotomy that that's what we do. Same thing happens in the U.S. People do what they are trained to do and what they see around them. And we very often practice in silos where we don't see other options for what can be done. And cultural practice plays a huge role in in people's experience. Mm -hmm. So then let's talk about birth positions with an epidural. What are risk, benefits, the things around birth positions with an epidural?
1: So we don't have as much good evidence on this. There's one really large study that kind of like dominates the research on this Mm -hmm. topic. It's called the Bumpies trial or Bumps. I don't know how they pronounce it. It was done in the United (laughs) Kingdom. And that one they were comparing upright versus sideline positions with an epidural. And if you had to guess, which one do you think would be more beneficial?
0: Um, up. I would say upright,
1: but is it, si- is it sideline that's most beneficial? Yeah. So interestingly, they found the sideline position to be more beneficial. Now they were not using any back lying, semi sitting or lithotomy positions. The upright uh, group was either on foot, standing, sitting or kneeling. Okay. And the non upright group, the sideline group, they were sideline with the head of the bed raised up. Thirty degrees. and most of these people had really low dose epidurals. So they mm-hmm. were able to move around pretty freely, unlike me when i I had my epidural. Sure. And they found that fewer people in the upright position had a spontaneous vaginal birth. It was thirty five percent of them had a spontaneous vaginal birth versus forty one percent in the sideline group. But the problem with this study is that the rate of vacuum and forceps was more than fifty percent in both groups. This, I, I, so, this is so
0: perplexing to me. I know, what, I,
1: like, because that's just not
0: that's just not common. So
1: yeah, it's like it's another cultural thing, right? Mm-hmm. So we have very high cesarean rates, whereas another country might have very high vacuum mm-hmm. and forceps delivery rates. So it's not really clear. I, I really don't think that we could use this study to truly generalize like the findings both are probably acceptable both upright and sideline positions. I did find two other studies on the lithotomy position with epidurals mm-hmm. and they found like I mentioned earlier that the lithotomy position was had many more risks than any other position right so there are some other smaller studies on that subject but yeah we don't have a lot of research on that. We do have one other study though, on using birth seats. Mm-hmm. And for your listeners who aren't familiar with that, you can you can Google different kinds of birth seats. And I have a video on our YouTube channel that kind of shows the different types of birthing stools. I can send you that link. Sure. But there is one study on using, often these birth seats are like uh, U-shaped. Uh-huh. So, and they make room for the, the tailbone to still be flexible while you're kind of sitting on them. And then the provider can access the baby coming out through the front, the U part. And the researchers, and these were in Sweden, they had more than 1,000 people giving birth for the first time. And about half of them had epidurals. So half had epidurals and half didn't. And they found that using a birth seat was led to a shorter pushing phase, less use of pitocin, and fewer episiotomies. There was, however, a slightly higher risk of losing blood postpartum, but this did not affect like any long-term outcomes, and there was no difference in the rate of forceps or vacuum assistance being used. But one of the interesting things about the study is the participants were more likely to report if they used a birth seat that they felt powerful, protected, and self-confident, huh. which... I thought was interesting. A lot of time in these research studies, we just have like statistics on different health outcomes, but nobody actually asks people like, what was your experience like? How do you
0: feel? Yes. Yes. Yeah.
1: So (laughs) I thought that was really, you know, I, it's really cool to know that something as simple as having these special birth seats can, can make such a difference in your satisfaction and how you feel about yourself as you're giving birth. And I, I still have found it's not that common where I live in Kentucky unless you bring your own birthing stool, they're not like widely available where I live.
0: Not, I I haven't. I mean, I've worked in several hospitals during my career and I've seen it in one, Mm -hmm. but even people using them, it's just not, it's not very common. So I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I have never attended a birth. With someone on a birth stool, certainly done in upright positions, but not on a birth Mm -hmm. stool. So it's not very common.
1: And there are ones you can bring that are inflatable, and there's plastic ones that can be easily sanitized in -hmm. in between patients. So it doesn't have to be just like the, the old fashioned kind of wooden stool, which there's a long history, though, of wooden birthing stools. I mean, it goes as far back as the Bible. There's a Bible verse about midwives attending to the Hebrew women on the birthing stool. Mm. So it's a very ancient practice, and there's probably a good reason for it that yeah. a lot of people have been attracted to it. But again, it goes back to culture as culture shifts and people don't see it anymore. They think it's this outlandish, weird thing, right? When it right. actually is something that's been passed down through the ages.
0: Absolutely. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is a pediatrician-approved skin protectant free of dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide. It was developed by a mom who is also a doctor when she couldn't find any traditional products that worked for her baby's persistent diaper rash. Diaper rash can be one of the worst experiences your little one has to go through and keeping their delicate skin happy and healthy shouldn't require a spatula to apply thick goopy treatments that can be just as irritating and uncomfortable as the diaper rash itself. Use just a small amount of Dr. Mom Butt Balm to help soothe your baby's skin and feel good about making the right choice. Dr. Mom is committed to providing an ultra premium formula for moms who will not settle when it comes to their little ones. Help your baby feel better and get relief from irritating diaper rash with simple quality ingredients, no artificial dyes or preservatives, so it's gentle on your baby's delicate skin. Head to amazon.com or walmart.com to grab Dr. Mom Butt Balm because nothing comes between you and your baby, especially not diaper rash. All right, so the reality is that especially here in, in the US that most people give birth in the hospital, which often or is very likely going to mean giving birth or at least doctors wanting, nurses wanting you to be on your back. So what advice would you give to someone who's having a baby and plans to give birth in the hospital about trying to navigate that reality?
1: Yeah, I think it's important to be upfront and honest with your healthcare team about your birth plan. So if you want to give birth in an upright position, you need to start having conversations with your healthcare provider. And you need to bring up the difference between upright birthing positions during pushing and during delivery. And I don't usually use the word delivery as, I have a book called Babies Are Not Pizzas, they're born, not delivered. I Because delivery is a very passive term. I think it gives the power to the provider instead of mm-hmm. the parent. I prefer to say like when I birthed my baby instead mm-hmm. of when the doctor delivered my baby. But that's the terminology that most doctors use. yeah. And that makes it really clear. Like what positions do you attend you know, births during the pushing phase. What kinds of positions do you support as a provider during the actual delivery? And I would probably use that exact phrase, the Mm -hmm. actual delivery to find out like, what are they, what is their comfort level? Because if this is really important to you, it's important then to find a provider who is comfortable with it. Because Mm -hmm. a lot of providers who are not familiar with upright birth have a lot of fear associated with it, and they will come up with an excuse most of the time to try and, and, and get you on your back, not out of some you know, malintent, but because they're nervous mm-hmm. and they don't feel safe. And so most midwives, I would say, can support an upright birth because they're trained in it during school. Not all do it as a normal practice, but kind of finding out what that looks like with your provider and the providers in their practice. Right. So if you know, you don't know which provider is going to be at your birth, like find out, well, what about your colleagues? You know, how do they um, like to support the actual delivery? And if you really want to give birth in an upright position, you might have to switch clinics Mm -hmm. in order to get that. Because like I said, they can't force you on your back, although there are documented cases of people being forced on their backs. That is like a form of battery. But it there's a lot of psychological pressure that can be put on you at the last minute. So if it's important to you. That's what I recommend is finding out what their typical practice is and then deciding, you know, is this a, a negotiable for you or not? Like if right. you If you don't mind, if you're okay with pushing – In an upright position and then getting on your back for the delivery, then that's great. But if it's really important to you to have an, say you're having an unmedicated birth and pain control is very important to you, like getting on your back for the delivery might be incredibly painful. So thinking about like, you know, what are your wishes and what's negotiable and what's not. And yeah. And if you're giving birth in a freestanding birth center at home, it's typically not going to be an option. It just kind of, and you can ask around, ask doulas in your area If you have a doula, ask them, what have you seen with the providers from my practice? Like, do they support upright birth and delivery or not?
0: Absolutely. And waiting until you get to the hospital and handing someone your birth plan is entirely too late.
1: Yeah, I mean, technically they should respect it, but... You know, also one thing you can do is ask for a nurse when you get there who enjoys unmedicated birth or upright Mm -hmm. birth. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing you can do to make it more likely that you have upright pushing positions is there are a few hospitals that support water birth as an option. And in water birth, you almost always give birth in an upright position. So that's something else that can enhance the likelihood. Also making sure that if you're going to have fetal monitoring, that they have wireless monitors, things that make it easier for you to be mobile during both the laboring phase and the pushing phase. Those are all things that can help sure. if that's one of your goals to have an upright birth. Yeah. And I guess
0: as we wrap up, I, I think of it this way that you don't have to give birth in any particular position, the key is that you should have all of the options available to you. Mm-hmm. So you may find that you want to be on your side, you may find that you want to be on hands and knees, you may find that you want to be kneeling. Occasionally, people like you said, may want to be on their back, but you shouldn't be forced to do any one way. Mm-hmm. The, the key is that you should have the options available to you.
1: And if if for some reason you end up with a provider who's not supportive of your wishes, that's where you want to have an advocate or two with you Mm -hmm. who can help speak up for you because you're in a very vulnerable situation as the baby is literally emerging from your body. So if they're like, you have to get on your back now, but there's no true medical reason for Mm -hmm. it, you know, having Mm -hmm. a partner there who could be like, no, she's staying right where she is can make the difference for you. And knowing that somebody is like speaking up for you when you're in the middle of a contraction or pushing and you can't. Sure. Yeah. And I agree. Like I have talked with people who have said, I ended up on my back and that was the most comfortable position for me. And I think it's important for people to know, like it really is about your choices and your wishes. That's the whole point. The problem is when we have a norm where everybody's expected to give birth on their back, Mm -hmm. it's the people who don't want to give birth on their backs that have the hardest time achieving that goal.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So some, I guess sometimes I just see people see like, I'm not supposed to be on my back. I'm not supposed to be on my back. And it's like, that's not what it is really that you are supposed to be how you feel most comfortable or what feels natural to you, whatever that may be. So keep your, keep your, listen to the instincts of your body and get in the positions that you feel work best for you. And then we, as the people attending the birth should so absolutely support that the nurses should support that yeah so,
1: and I think if you yeah. go back to like my story and how I laid on my back for so long mm-hmm. you know at the very minimum you need to be shifting your position at least every 30 minutes 100%. unless you're asleep yeah and how old is your was this is your oh, child so she yeah she is 14 years old so okay. she is a, te- a, a young teen now okay. but it definitely feels like it was yesterday sure <laughs> and I know it's still a problem yeah, in, it is in my town yeah so it's not like it's gone away and um, I have not worked myself out of a job yet, but I keep trying
0: <laughs> I would this I, I say that all <laughs> the time. I would love to not have to talk about any of these things and people can just walk into the hospital and know that they're gonna be supported. I mean obviously I know out of hospital birth are options for for people, but for people who either want to be in the hospital or need to be in the hospital, everyone should have all of these options available to them. So I'm like, it, I would be delighted not to yeah. <laughs> have to talk about these things anymore. But what yeah. a
1: difference it would have made for me if if a nurse taught me how to use the peanut ball, Yes, is that peanut shaped birth ball yeah, to... Mm-hmm. to prop my legs open. Cause you can do a kind of squat in the bed lying while lying on your side. And there's, there's all kinds of creative ways you can help someone with an epidural with the bed and the different Absolutely. positions it can get into. So Absolutely. it really was just a, you know, it comes down to like nursing support because the nurses in the United States are the ones coaching you through most of the pushing until mm-hmm. you get close to the delivery.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yes, a nurse is so, so, so important mm-hmm. who, who is or comfortable a, with trying to, or yeah. do, yes, yes. It's so, so, um, so important. I've, I will often say like literally millimeters can make a difference in terms of how a baby will fit through mm-hmm. a pelvis and you mm-hmm. just have to keep moving and doing exactly. the things in order to try to get it. I mean my in-
1: pelvis obviously was perfectly adequate for a nine pound baby. Uh, yes. So why did it take six or sorry, three hours to push out mm-hmm. a six pound, eight ounce baby? It's mm-hmm. it was clearly the position mm-hmm. was was probably the problem. Yeah. And absolutely so it was preventable. So yeah, I I consented. I said, Yes, you may do the manual like using your hand to move the baby and and that was it was a bad experience, but I consented to it and I wanted her to do it. And then I consented to the vacuum. I gave my full informed consent, Mm -hmm. but I think those things were avoidable. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think they had to happen. Yeah, I agree, agree. And then the last thing I would say is if, you know, you're planning on giving birth and you're interested in upright birthing. So I did a lot for my second birth of visualization and rehearsing the position I wanted to give birth in. Mm. So I, during all my pregnancies, was always most comfortable when I was on my knees with my upper body draped over a birth ball. And that took the pressure off my back, and it just always felt so good on my hips and my back. Right, So I really wanted to give birth on my hands and knees, but with, like, my upper body kind of leaning on something. Uh And so I spent a lot of time in that position towards the end of pregnancy, and I would kind of, like, try and do my deep breathing and relax And I also visualized my baby coming out while I was in that position. So it it really helped me, I think, prep for a completely different experience. Right, right. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. So just
0: as we wrap up, I ask all of my guests, what's the most frustrating part of your work?
1: Oh, I didn't know that this is a question you ask now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Probably continuing to hear the same complaints 11 years after I started evidence-based birth. And I do see a lot of improvement. I will say that, but I still get stories and I'm like, yep, it's still happening. And so, you know, as I talked with you earlier about just the fact that we still have to talk about these things and try and like culture change is hard. It is. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what, you know, you and I are doing is we're mm-hmm. trying to change the culture around mm-hmm. birth to make it more supportive and have more options and choices and.
0: And more centered yeah. on the person actually giving birth. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I see improvement, but there's, it's, it's very geographic. You know, mm-hmm. you can have one place that's doing great and another place that's not. And so it's hard for families to, especially when they're, when they're blindsided and they didn't, see it coming sure and so i really that's the hardest part but the best part yeah i
0: was gonna say on the flip side what's the most rewarding part of your work
1: the most rewarding part is seeing the changes happening and more and more nurses especially getting empowered i think that 10 or 11 years ago when i started evidence-based birth i think doulas were still an unknown group Mm -hmm. and they felt helpless in many ways in the face of all these challenges but i think Um, I see them feeling stronger now and, you know, having more power because consumers really trust them. And so, yeah, I see a lot of of improvements as well. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. So if you had to give one piece of advice to expectant families, what would that one piece of
1: it, your favorite piece of advice be? Hmm. Oh, you know, I always have more than one. Okay. Maybe two. How about that? (laughs) Probably if I could only give one, it would Uh, probably be to find a doula because if you find a doula, they'll help you with the the other the other pieces uh-huh. of advice which I normally give as well. <laughs> yes,
0: that is true. Um doulas <laughs> do more than just support during birth. They help you during your pregnancy as well to get prepared for birth. Yeah,
1: they're resource mavens. They're kind of like they know all the people and all the places yep. and can connect you with what you need.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So then where can people find you and your resources and your book? Her book is great. You all. So where can people find you?
1: Yeah. So you can our web- go to our website, evidencebasedbirth.com and we have a free crash course on how to get evidence-based care. And then we're on social media. We spend most of our time on Instagram mm-hmm. at eb birth we also have a youtube channel and that is at evidence-based birth and then you can find my book on amazon or barnes and noble or in our shop and it's called babies are not pizzas they're born not delivered
0: all right well thank you so much rebecca for coming on to the podcast it was great to have you back on it was an honor to be here All right. Wasn't that a great episode? Lots of evidence around birth positions and I learned something and I know that you learned something too. All right. Now after every episode, when I have a guest on, I do something called Dr. Nicole's notes, where I talk about my top takeaways from the conversation. Here are my Dr. Nicole's notes from my conversation with Rebecca. Number one, we all have to keep an open mind about birth positions. And all, I mean you as the person giving birth and us as medical professionals. And let me explain what I mean. This may be a little bit surprising to you. So from the person who is giving birth, from from your perspective, sometimes I see people who are really, really adamant that they do not want to give birth on their backs. They refuse to even think about it or consider it. And I know we talked about some of the literature in the episode that speaks of harms done in that lithotomy position. However, there are some caveats to that. The the research is mostly done in other countries and also under different circumstances surrounding birth. Like it doesn't sit right with me that some of these studies have really, really high episiotomy rates, really high than what we normally see in the US, which is well less than 10%. And I also have to think about my own personal experience. That's not research, but my well over a thousand births does count for something. And I have seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women give birth on their backs and things go well. So what the most pressing problem with giving birth on your back is not that it is inherently or automatically going to be awful or dangerous or harmful. The most pressing problem with giving birth on your back is when that is the only option that is available to you. That is where we as medical professionals have to support other options as well and be open to learn about supporting different birth positions. The truth is, You don't have to give birth in any specific position, but you should absolutely have all of the options, all right? You should not be forced to give birth on your back. You should have the option to give birth on your side. You should have the option to give birth in hands and knees or squatting. We should have birth stools. Those things aren't readily available, but you should have at least at minimum in the hospital, the option to give birth on your side, the option to do hands and knees. You absolutely should push in different positions for sure to help baby get in a better position. So keep an open mind about birth positions because you will actually see some people actually like giving birth on their back. They don't find it problematic or they find that that's the most comfortable position. So I want you to keep an open mind about it. And then we as medical, professional, medical professionals have to keep an open mind and be able to support different options as well. Again, you don't have to give birth in a specific position. You shouldn't cross anything off your list, but you absolutely should have all of the options. And that to me is the most pressing problem about giving birth on your back is that some people are forced to do that. That is absolutely wrong. Okay. That leads me to point number two, which is that cultural practice is so influential. We talked about that in the episode and by cultural practice, I mean how people learn, what they are used to doing, how they are used to approaching birth just plays such a huge, huge, huge role in your birth experience. And we very much so practice in silos, meaning that you learn a specific way. And once you learn that way, it's not like you see other doctors practicing in order to learn different ways of approaching things. So it can, it's really easy for cultural practices, including bad cultural practices to get ingrained. And it can be challenging for those to change. Okay. So the culture of how we practice is just so, so important which is what leads me to point number three is you have to understand the culture where you are giving birth and understanding that is understanding what questions to ask. So, you know, how your doctor approaches birth, how the hospital where you are giving birth approaches birth. These are crucial things to know, and you have to have these conversations prior to getting to the hospital you cannot wait until you show up to the hospital in labor and you're like, well, I don't want to push you on my back. And they're like, well, we don't know how to do that. Then you're stuck. Okay. So this is again where childbirth education, good childbirth education comes in to help you be prepared and ask the right questions during your prenatal visits. That's one of the things that, of course, I cover inside of the birth preparation course is questions to ask so you know your options and you know the evidence behind the options as well. So please, again, another plug for childbirth education It's just, I can't overstate how important it is to ask these questions ahead of time. So you have a sense for how your doctor and hospital approach birth so you can plan accordingly. Of course, the birth preparation course is drnicolerankins.com forward slash enroll, but really look at your options for childbirth education and find something that works for you. Okay. So there you have it. Do me a solid share this podcast with at least three people. Hit that share button inside of your app. Share it with three people. Sharing is caring. Sharing helps me to reach and serve more people. I am on a mission to reach and serve as many people as I can through this podcast, through my work. I want to be like the next what to expect when expecting. Okay. You know, that's a common book that people recommend. That's how I want to reach and serve pregnant folks. And I would love your help doing so. So share this podcast with a friend. Also subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to me right now. And let me know what you think about the podcast. Shoot me a DM on Instagram. I'm on Instagram at Dr. Nicole Rankins. You should definitely follow me there for pregnancy and birth information beyond what is in the podcast. Of course, it adds that beautiful visual element. I do videos there as well. So follow me on Instagram at Dr. Nicole Rankins and shoot me a DM and let me know What you think about the show, let me know if you have any show ideas. I am always open to hear that. Okay, so that's it for this episode. Do come on back next week and remember that you deserve a beautiful pregnancy and birth.